The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Hey, Wendy. Hey, how are you? I took a quick dip into depression this morning to get ready for this week's guest. Really? You're depressed? No, 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 no. I didn't get get depressed. I have medication for that. But I wanted to brush up on Jessica Holmes, who uh, is one of the funniest people on this or any other planet. And uh, she's also one of many, many, many comedians who deal or has dealt with depression. And she's written and talked about it. And we know she's not alone. Yeah, it's weird. We've talked to a lot of comedians who suffer from various forms of anxiety, depression. But then we did our first man, Rick Mercer, and he like had a happy child. And we're like, what's wrong with you? Like you're a comedian. How could you be happy? Yeah, yeah. And you know, a lot of them, like Mark Marin, Patton Oswald, Tig Notaro. Tig, Tig says she used to suffer from depression, or as her father put it, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, then there's those that suffered so deeply that they couldn't take it anymore, like Mitch Hedberg and Richard Jenny and Freddie Prince, Robin Liz- Williams. Robin who, Williams. I mean, he ended up dying of a of a mental illness that was really. He had all kinds of addictions. He was the funniest man on earth. I I just loved him. Yeah, yeah. But before we go too deeply down that rabbit hole, there's Jessica and some others who figured out how to cope with it, and not only that, but she's using her powers to help other people. Yeah. So obviously we're going to talk to Jessica. Uh, A little background first. You might know her. She was at the Royal Canadian Air Force, which was on for like a thousand years. I think she was there for at least three or four hundred. No, she's. (laughs) Uh, She was the youngest by far. She was the puppy. She was the she was the young, you know, ingenue. Yeah, and very funny. And and she's so famous for her character impersonation. She did an uncanny Celine Dion, which we'll have to talk about that because things are changing. She's written several books, including one called Depression, the comedy. Ah, there, you've got it. You've got it with you. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> but these days, she's a motivational speaker. She's taken her own experiences and used them to help and, of course, make other people laugh. So we're very happy to welcome her. Hello, Jessica. Hi, I am so happy to be here. I admire you both. And I remember when when you reached out, I was so flattered by it. But during the pandemic, I switched to doing shows virtually. And I felt like for my own self care, I was like, I cannot look at screens any more than I possibly have to at this point. And then finally, life has some balance again. So I'm thrilled to just be about people now. Oh, we're so happy that you're here because we've, like you were on our list from the very, very beginning. And yeah, so it's, we, we, we can see you. We're, uh, this is fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I appreciate it. And I, Maureen, you and I had met uh, several times on radio interviews. Wendy, I'd seen you at the CBC, but do you remember I also approached you on a flight one day and I was just like, hi, how are you? I didn't even know what to say other than like, Hey, we both we both do stuff in public and I just really admire you and while the rest of the passengers sort of looked over and gawked at my awkwardness but um yeah I admire you both and thank you. Thanks for having me on. Did Wendy say please please leave me alone? <laughs> yes, I just want to be left. Where is everybody? <laughs> but we're on a podcast now so we're sort of it's a very very different world and you're doing speeches but it's interesting because you sent us an email for this whole setup thing and there's something in there if you're telekinetic everybody in the crowd raise your hand are you tell what what the hell is that no you know what that was that's just a quote i believe that's an emo phillips joke i try and switch up every so often the joke 
that I put at the bottom of my email address just to be a little fun, just to have some fun in life. Like my only job right now is I'm a speaker. Other than the shows that I have booked, I have no set schedule and no set motivation. So I have to motivate myself to, okay, well, you know what? The first of every month, I'll change that quote. And the <laughs> every single day I'll do, I'll listen to a new podcast or every day. I have to sort of trick myself into having these this f- fake schedule that really nobody cares about except for me, but it's, it's good for my mental health. And I feel like it's good for my job to kind of treat it like it was a nine to five. So you don't like make plants rise and travel across the room or <laughs> <laughs> like carry. I, listen, I've got, uh, I've got teenage kids. And so they keep me honest. We do the drop off and pickups every day. And that has been a, a giant part of schedule. And you know what? I, I People keep saying, well, just let them take the subway. And I'm like, I can't let them be independent. They won't need me. So anyhow, I'm at a very needy stage of parenting where um, the I, I'm pretty sure the kids get excited when I go on the road for work. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, how did, like, I follow you, I followed you on Instagram for years. And I know that during the pandemic for a while, everything was quiet. And then you started doing all your work virtually, right down to the the pretty sparkly dresses from your living room or wherever you were. That had to be that had to, nobody had ever done that before. You were actually doing keynotes and emceeing from home. I wish I could go back to like the first five virtual shows that I did and just <laughs> shake myself and be like, no, no, try harder. But I was sort of a bit paralyzed with fear in those first five virtual shows that I did. You know, we were all learning. And whereas now when I do a virtual show, I have pom-poms by my side. I'm like, whoop, whoop. I get my cats and dog in on the show. Um, I have just a whole little series of props and doohickeys that I use. And quite frankly, I've just gotten you and, and you would know this, Maureen, as someone who did radio work, I feel like you were so much better prepared to just imagine who the listener is. And I feel like <laughs> two and a half years later, now I know who my listener, like I know who, who my viewers are. I don't have to have their image up on the screen. I really do feel like I'm chatting with someone who's like, dude, give me a bit of connection. I just want to feel a bit of human connection. So now I'm so comfortable and happy in that space. And I understand the service it provides. But at the start of the pandemic, like Wendy, did you feel that? when virtual first started, were you like? Well, I still don't really know what I'm doing. Like uh, Maureen does everything technical involved. So I'm just faking it. I just show up and I (laughs) click the button and then it doesn't work. And I say, Maureen, it doesn't work. Help. But yeah, I'm going to have to do more virtual things, but I'm fascinated that you have teenagers because I'm having flashbacks and a friend of mine just wrote something about, what the hell is going on? My team, my, my kid is just growing older and rolling their eyes after I took them to school and I fed them breakfast and how dare they? So are, are your teenagers like, are they, are they eye rollers or do they only roll their eyes when you're not looking? No, I, I married the kindest, gentlest man in the world. And somehow my children inherited 100% of his personality traits. So I'm the only drama in the house. I'm the only one who kind of, you know, (laughs) freaks out and rolls her eyes and whatever. My kids are delightful. I don't, I think it was pure nature, not much to do with nurture, or maybe one little theory that I have is there's only room for one (laughs) 
<laughs> one drama queen in the house. And so that perhaps the children grew up feeling like mom takes up the oxygen in the room and uh, I get to be a really happy spectator. So as I said, I, it's, it's neat for me to see as they go out into the world more that they have their own lights to shine. Like in their friend groups, they're the funny people. They're the wild card. Whereas in the house, it's sort of people going, mom, can you put clothes on? Mom, can you stop leaving your paintings around the house? Or can you, you know, it's, it's, I'm the kid in this house, I guess. This is so interesting to me and Wendy to a certain extent, I think, but you know, the way that you talk about Scott is the way I talk about my husband. I, my husband is the calm, nurturing, dependable one and I'm the 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 one that sucks the oxygen in the room. I wouldn't say if that's true about Wendy and Liam, but definitely between the two of you you would be the more dramatic one. Oh no, he'd call me a drama queen. Yeah, okay, all right. So I I just wanted to tread carefully. <laughs> yeah. But um did, did have you any of you seen the Fablemans? No, yeah, the no should I see it? Is it wonderful? Yeah, you should see. You absolutely should see it for a lot of reasons. It's a beautifully crafted film. But my youngest son said he couldn't get over how much Michelle Williams' character, who plays essentially Steven Spielberg, Spielberg's mother, reminded him of me. So when I watched the movie, I mean, she's a wonderful character, but definitely, you know, everything that you're talking about. And, and, I, and I think that works. I don't think you can have two you know, show-stopping people in a really, somebody's got to stop the show and the other person. I think that that's what, don't you think that's what Richard Burton and Liz Taylor probably were that the, the, and that's why it only lasted a year type of thing. So I put a post out the other day and Scott's been wonderful in allowing me to share the ups and downs of our marriage in the book or in interviews just for the greater good, because nobody talks about, a difficult marriage while they're in it because it feels like a rude thing to do or it feels disrespectful to your partner. Whereas Scott and I, like he, his full-time career is he's an energy healer. And so he is very much, honey, say whatever you think will help people. And I'm just an open book. And uh, so I wrote a post the other day just about the fact that when we were in a one of <laughs> several difficult periods in our marriage, I said to my mom, like, I don't know, mom, I don't know. And she was like, honey, honey, first of all, you'll never meet someone <laughs> who loves you like that man. But secondly, sometimes kids carry the marriage. Sometimes work carries the marriage. Sometimes marriage carries friendships. So you know what I mean? Like there, it's, there's, there's moving parts to life and some parts of it are down while other parts of it are up. So you just lean on the parts of it that are up until the other parts come back around and my marriage has come back around. We've been married 20 years. We celebrated 20 years this year. I'm so glad to have stuck it out during the hard times. If you're with the wrong person, get the heck out. If you're with the wrong job, wrong friend, all of it, get the heck out. But if you're with the right person and you're just in a rocky patch, I, I say, hang on. I say, see what's around the corner. There was such a lovely thing that, that you wrote about in some, somewhere that I read about you, about how you didn't know you were depressed. You were just like sleeping all the time and you were a zombie. And then at some point you said to him, I can't look after the children. He's like, yeah, whatever. You just chill out. And you go, no, I can't look after them like ever. And he was like, okay, I'm going to call the doctor. <laughs> and that's when it all changed for you. I think. So yeah. it was a pretty lovely story of him trying to be supportive, I think. Well, and do you know what's interesting? So I went through my depression for a couple of years and he like hung on surviving on adrenaline alone. And 
then when I came out of my depression, he went through a couple of years where he, it wasn't depression, (laughs) but he like, finally, when I was sort of like on shore and safe, that's when he was finally allowed to be like, Hey man, I hurt too. I have feelings too. I have this stuff I go through. And so he went through his own thing. And uh, it's kind of funny. Cause I was like, Oh God, how long is this going to last? And he's like, Hey, I <laughs> two years of you sitting on the sofa while I cleaned up after your junk. So you, you better stick this one out, honey. And I did stick it out. And now it's nice. Cause we're sort of both in this healthy place and uh it's a it's the dessert i guess and no you know seizing the moment and recognizing it very few people realize they're happy they go back they look back and go that was a good time in our lives and to be able to say this is a good time in our lives is is uh is important and it's very similar i I suffered from depression then i had then i got cancer wendy and i got cancer at the same time because we tried to do everything together (laughs) and it was after i had finished treatment that that I got depressed, but that's a whole thing to do with surviving and having been through something. And then you realize, well, what's the point? And, and then I got fine. But I think that John, like Scott has been sort of that, you know, he's got to keep it together. And once he doesn't have to keep it together, he's free to, to, to feel his own emotions. We tend to suck up a lot of energy, don't we? Yes. Yes. God bless, <laughs> God bless the people who like difficult women. Yeah. <laughs> women of ill repute. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, we think it's a compliment. Not everybody does, but most people do, I think. But I I guess it all comes back to that book, Depression, the Comedy, which sounds like it doesn't sound very, but it is funny. It's very funny. And it comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that so many people who tell jokes, you know, have, have, have felt big, bad things as well. So I, I don't know. I can't believe that people said, oh, no, Jessica, you can't uh, call the book Depression the Comedy. It's not funny. It's actually sounds kind of it funny. Very intriguing. Yeah. And I, and I was approached by one gentleman at a mental health event where he said, are you mocking depression? And I said, never. Ne- the, like actual depression? No, not funny at all. Can I look back at my journey and find humor in it so that other people can learn about mental health in a very light, non-triggering way, 100%. And quite frankly, that is how I look at life. I Comedians look at life that way. We go through something, we say tragedy plus time equals comedy, or d- stress plus time, or embarrassment plus time. It equals comedy. And so once you do begin to turn that corner on something bad that's happened... Our brains naturally say, what's funny about that? Where can I find a little bit of humor in that? So for me, it's making fun of the antidepressant commercials or making fun of the fact that it, that it took me two years to even stop. Like the, the t- list of things that I blamed it on were, it was such an extensive list because people kept saying, is there something wrong? I'm pretty sure there's something wrong with you. And I was like, no, you know what? It's, it's anemia. I'm pretty sure it's just anemia. I need more iron in my diet. I keep forgetting to go to the store. That's what it is. Or uh, it's, you know what, people's shoes keep cluttering up the front hallway. And it's just, of course, that's why I'm angry all of the time. That's very reasonable. So you kind of go back in your own journey and you, you look at the excuses you made. So absolutely, I would never make fun of anyone else's journey. And I would never even tell someone else, hey, you should look on the bright side and see the funny in it. Because chances are you don't find funny in your own pain. Comedians are a different breed. All we know how to do is put 
a little bit of levity into the world when we've been through something hard. And that gives us purpose. It's an equation not everyone understands, but for me, it makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm even relieved when I see my kids go through something hard and then turn a corner and make a little joke about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, we're all going to be okay. We're going to be okay. The Women of Ill Repute. Okay, so uh, yes, the, the comedic mantra that a time makes everything funny. Uh, I've got a two-pronged question for you. You ready? Yeah. Does it make every, is there anything that time does not make funny? I mean, you know, other than the Holocaust, although people will, you know, go there as well. That's my first. And how are you dealing with Celine and her prognosis? Okay. So you know what? That ties in very well. (laughs) There are some things that absolutely just shouldn't be laughed about. And I can't joke about someone else's painful journey. So that is not something I would do. So I decided that I'm just indefinitely going to not do Celine Dion anymore. And part of that is there's a term in comedy called punching down. And when you poke fun at someone who has less than you or is struggling more than you, that's called punching downward. Like the person's already down. There's no joy or fun. Uh, It's just mean spirited. Punching up on the other hand is this person is glamorizing their rich, famous life and me doing an impression does not hurt that person in any way, shape or form. And it actually speaks a little bit of truth to power in its own tiny little way. So I started doing the Celine Dion impression when she came out with a book of photos, I believe it was, that was sort of glamorizing this relationship with her manager. And at the time, I was just like, sorry, are are teenagers allowed to just uh, be left alone with their managers and fall in love? And like that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. But also the first page of her autobiography was... uh, uh, talking about how, you know, there were 13 siblings born before her, but then she was born and it was a little bit of a miracle and it was a very special occasion for the family. So (laughs) I sort of thought, what would it be like to have that self-esteem, to love yourself that much? And this character was born and I've loved playing her because it does feel good to believe you are a miracle bestowed upon planet Earth. And so my impression went from being mean-spirited to just being a little more what if I added self-esteem to whatever I said and a French accent and, and that impression was born, but then now she's not able to sing. I can't imagine the pain of thinking your outlet for connecting with the world is gone. And so for me, there's no joy in making, to me, that would be punching down to do that impression. Did you ever talk to her? Did she ever acknowledge that she knew you were out there? No. And I, I avoided it. Like I I've met a lot of people over the years who are like, I know her, you should do your impression for her. Let me And I was just like, Oh no, I'm good. Because I was scared that she would say to me, Hey, the impression hurts my feelings. And then I'd be like, well, now I'm out. No, I think I don't, I've met her a couple of times, never, you know, and this, when she was just starting out, but like a lot of, and I'm going to make a sweeping generalization, like a lot of French Canadians, she loves to laugh. And she was always good about laughing at herself. So I think she probably appreciated what you did. And she's probably would appreciate the fact that this it's time to back down. Oh, that's beautiful. So uh, yeah, Maureen, what is your 
take on what she's going through. Stiff person syndrome. When I heard it, I got to be honest, when I heard it, I thought this got to be a joke because I didn't know that that existed. But it's an incredibly painful autoimmune disease for which there doesn't seem to be a cure. I mean, she's so full of life and full of passion and full of, you know, and, and a workaholic. And, and I can't imagine how devastating this must be for her. And you're right. She has just, she's disappeared. And whether that's permanent or not remains to be seen. But no, it is. It's a it's a tragedy, no doubt. And and really, what you would say is the prime of her life. Like she's become, even after, especially after Renee died, she's become this sort of bird of paradise. You know, with the fashion and the. No, it's 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 very sad. It is very sad. Yeah, it's too bad because your impersonation of her was uh, was was spot on. It was so clever. And now, like, she's still a big deal. Like, when Rolling Stone came out with their list of the top 100 uh, musicians and her name wasn't on it, like, Quebecers have a love-hate relationship with her. And uh, it's kind of like Madonna, like, she's amazing, but... But she's, you know, she's too much or too little for for so many people. So it's kind of sad that you can't do that anymore. But. Yeah, I'm going to find, thank God for Jennifer Coolidge. Maybe, like, that might be my, my next impression. Um, but what I do now when I'm doing a live show, because... I like to start any show by doing impressions because for me, that's just an icebreaker. So usually what I do is I have a medley. If it's a live show, I have a medley of different characters that I've played over the years. And Celine Dion is not a part of it, but it'll be, you know, Liza and Joni Mitchell and Britney Spears and just a a bunch of different singers whose voices I've always found incredible because now so many singers are very homogenized and you can tell they've been auto-tuned. And so I'm a fan of the people whose voices you could just pick out on the radio and you say, Oh my gosh, there's nobody else like that. Like even, even Miley Cyrus right now, I, I find it cool how deep her register is. And yeah, yeah, I'm always sort of on the lookout for, okay, who's the, who's the next person that I can have fun with and play with. And so I do that off the top of my show just for me to feel more relaxed. And then quite frankly, it's fun. It's just fun to have a little music for people who are often stuck in an office all day. But I also stopped doing Celine for two years after Renee passed away. Because again, not funny. And it was only when she came back out swinging that I was like, woohoo, we're on. (laughs) (laughs) Do you sing yourself like as, as Jessica? Okay, so I... I sing okay for a comedian, but I never had any kind of training. But when I, I used to be part of the Mormon church and I went and served a mission in Venezuela for a year and a half when I was 21. And I just got the reputation for being, one guy said, ella tiene el don de la voz, which means she has the gift of the voice. So I, whichever new city I moved to, I became the choir director in that city and I would be the one up front singing, but it just never occurred to me to be a singer or that I sing. It just felt like, oh, that's a handy thing to have in my back pocket for when I want to do impressions of someone. That's one of the things that I remembered about you was the the whole Mormon church thing and that uh, uh, growing up in that world would be unusual, would be quite special in in, in many ways. And I was trying to remember whether you rejected it or it's just something that was part of your family or whether it's something that you endorse. And I like, you talk about it now. Is it, is like, how influential was that? It was incredibly influential. I only joined the church. I believe I was 16 or 17, but my parents have, my parents are stayed married, but right after they got married, he joined the Mormon church and she was like, 
an agnostic feminist and somehow they managed to stay together as a couple and the boys followed my dad and and were Mormon and I followed my mom. It was hilarious. She was, <laughs> she was agnostic, but she was like, I just need you to be not Mormon. So they made a compromise and I went by myself to Catholic church for my whole childhood. Like literally my mom would be like, here's two bucks for the basket, go to church. So I'd go <laughs> by myself as a child <laughs> In this, it was, it's like in retrospect, not a choice I would make for my kids. And I'm sure my parents are like, whoops, (laughs) whoa, (laughs) wish we could do that one over. (laughs) But when, when I was 16 or 17, I, I felt really compelled to join my father's church because it just seemed very beautiful to me. And that's kind of the community that I hung out with anyway. But so I, I went and I served the mission and it meant so much to me. But then when I moved to Toronto, comedy felt like home to me. And I started to have a lot of friends in the comedy community. And even though I didn't drink and I didn't swear, I was hanging out with people who did. And that made some of my church friends a bit nervous, but also I had a lot of gay friends. And when I told them, oh my gosh, I'm part of the most fun church. You guys should come to the church. And they're like, oh, we're not really welcome at your church. And I was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? It's about love. It's about loving everyone. And they were like, no, look into it. And I looked into it and I, uh, they've changed their policies now, which I'm so glad for, but I just felt like I can't be there. I can't be there. If, if it's not for gay, then it's not for me. It's not for any anyone uh, who believes in true equality and inclusivity. And so I have no ill wishes. I love so many people who are Mormon and I love my dad so much, but it just, it just wasn't for me anymore. Fair enough. <laughs> I didn't even know that about you. <laughs> Wendy was, a, Wendy said, Oh, Jessica, that's right. Yeah. She's the, the Mennonite comedian. I went, no. <laughs> Not going. I knew it was something, but it was something a little bit unusual. <laughs> something like that. And then I did a little more research and, and, and there you were. Yeah. Well, it's neat. Gavin Crawford also, uh, he grew up Mormon. And so he really? and I have had, you know, some little tete-a-tetes about, you know, how does that influence you and how do you, and so there is a part of me that still tries to be a little bit prim and proper and then cross over into like, Ooh, <laughs> I said the SHIT word. <laughs> that's, and that's just who I am. But it's, it's kind of neat when I have so many different circles of people in my life, like through sports or through work or through. And so sometimes I'll lean a little more into my, uh, you know, my pristine upbringing, innocent upbringing. I'll lean more in toward that with some groups and then other groups. I'm just like, bring on the booze. (laughs) It's, so we're not going to get you to tell like dirty stories about all the terrible people at Air Force. It doesn't seem like you somehow. (laughs) I have no terrible stories about, you you know Don. Yes, Don Ferguson, yeah. Yeah. And and you knew Roger. And for me, they were the kindest people in the world. And yeah. It yeah. I just felt like I was with family. Like it was such a safe landing for me. And when I arrived at Air Farce, I had just come off a very bad experience with the home show ending abruptly and sort of being feeling blacklisted from that whole segment of my career. And so then to come to Air Farce and I, I almost thought people were mocking me one day because they were being so nice. And I was like, are you making fun of me? And they were like, no, I <laughs> genuinely think you're very good. And I was like, this is weird. Comedians <laughs> tell each other that they're very good. Never. <laughs> so it, 
it fit like a warm glove. It was, it was really wonderful people. And I stayed until uh, depression <laughs> kind of pulled me out. All in all, I did over, over many years, I, I was on and off that show for about 15 years. Incredible. Huh. Yeah. You guys know it's, it's strange to have a long-term job in this industry. In this, yeah, it, it is, it is very odd. And then back to gigs, which is what we're all doing right now, actually, in one form or another. But it's interesting that you talk about the lack of support. It's not really that. It's just comedians don't laugh at other comedians. I've, I've literally, I've sta- stood in the back of a comedy club with other comedians watching someone on stage and they're like, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> the first open mic night I went to, there was a comedian at the back of the room with a rubber chicken. And if whoever was on stage wasn't getting laughs, he'd whip the chicken at them. And I'd be like, this is why am I here? This is terrifying. And I went up and I didn't get whipped with a rubber chicken, but it was, I remember feeling like, oh, that's this, this is, you know, we're not, well, <laughs> we're not in Kansas anymore. Funny or die. Funny or die. That's it. And then the, even the terminology, I killed tonight. I killed. I murdered everybody in the room. Good for you. That's that's the terminology. And you know what? I, I, I don't have the stomach for that. I barely had the stomach for it at the beginning of my career. And it's been probably over 10 years since I've set foot in a comedy club. And it's just not for me. And I, I sometimes joke that I'm the most working comedian that other comedians don't know is a comedian. Like no one in Canada's comedy community would be aware that I make a living doing comedy because I only do corporate shows and that's where I feel safe and happy. And there's nobody standing at the back of the room with their arms crossed. And so I've, I've found my niche and I'm very, very happy there. And I guess I'm (laughs) just at a stage of life where I, I don't want to push myself to try and be liked by people who don't like me or don't get me or I don't get them. We're not everyone's cup of tea and that's just fine with me. It was funny. You were talking, Maureen, about comedians never laughing at others. I went to see Mark Marin among the, the people that you re- referred to as suffering depression. from uh, yeah. anxiety, depression. It's a big part of his act and he's very, very funny and he's led a somewhat complicated life. Um, but a number of people went to see him. It was at just for laughs in Montreal uh, the comedy festival and Jimmy Carr, who is uh, one of the rudest, meanest comedians, was sitting in the back with his arms crossed, and Mark Marin was like, "Ah ha ha, we're all laughing and everything." Yeah, and he's like, "Mm-hmm, I know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm." And yet they're both comedians, so I, I don't know what there is, and and you don't quite fit, Jessica, because you're so nice. You're so nice. Well, I'm nice, but I'm also just too sensitive. Like I, if if someone were to tell me that they if someone, I'm the type of person where if someone were sitting there with their arms crossed, I would make up a whole story in my head about all the reasons they don't like me and stuff. <laughs> like it's, just, it's energy that I don't want to give. And I'm grateful every day that I found a place that does seem like a bit of a happier health, well, a much happier, healthier place for me. And that being said, I'm glad comedy exists for the people who really do need that energy. Like 90% of comedians love the camaraderie of the people who are willing to go a little darker. Um, and that just isn't for me, but I, I've always admired them. And those are the comedians I love watching and I want to support them. I just, yeah. I just don't fit in. So say S H I T. Say it, say it. <laughs> I can say shit. I can say shit. 
<laughs> Here, now smoke the cigarette. <laughs> Schoolyard boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know we had a big debate on this podcast about uh, someone used the C word and we had a big debate over, <gasps> should we use it or not? You should have seen our faces. We left it in. Yeah, we figured if that's how she wants to represent herself, that's fine. We support that. And, you know, who are we to uh, to be the, well, actually, we are the ones that should make that decision. <laughs> Who are we to decide? Who are we to You are the ones that decide. <laughs> so, Jessica, you're doing the corp- corporate thing. You're being a mom. You're you're being a, uh, a as as good a wife as any of us can be, whatever that means. Uh, so, do you have another book in you? I don't have a book in me, but I do have something I'm excited about. I have felt for years terrified of social media. Like whatever I write on it, yeah. You you can write the sky is blue today and someone will write something yep. angry about like, don't talk about the sky when there's poverty. Or, what do you mean knows? about blue? <laughs> <laughs> yes. When you say blue, what are you talking about? What are you really saying? And even just wondering who am I? Like, what is my voice? What do I want to put out there? Because I do, I'm a motivational speaker who uses comedy to bring a message of mental health. And I have always wondered like, what, how do you do social media if you don't really feel like you want to brag or say like, Hey, isn't my life great. And you want to put a nice message out there. So I actually started working with a woman named Lisa Peterson about six months ago. And she's a social media coach who helps you find your authentic voice and then find the bravery to just share what is in your heart. And so I feel like instead of a book or instead of new material, I'm just excited to figure out how can I reach people through social media with just funny, feel good, quick little tidbits. And I, maybe for some people listening, they're like, uh, you just do it. But I had a lot of anxiety to get over. And so now I finally found my mantra, which is just, Hey universe or God or Oprah or whoever makes the decisions up there. Uh, please give me the courage to make a difference where I can. And that's it. There's community building happening in all all different directions. You just got to find the right specific outlet. But I mean, there I love Twitter. There are other people who are like, I will not be on Twitter. It's the most hateful place in the world. But that's true of the world in general. It depends on who you know. Well, it's like yeah, it's like everything. It's like TV. There's good TV and ba- bad TV. Yeah, and that's the thing. And I just hadn't found what is my TV like. What is my what am I trying to say, and how do I want to say it? So I'm very happy to have finally figured that out and to be sort of very slowly moving forward in that direction. Cause I've always joked that social media is like a mean time travel machine. Cause you go on for five fun minutes to be like, what are my friends up to? And then poof, suddenly yeah. it's an hour later and you don't know what happened to the time. You just know you feel very sad about yourself. <laughs> and so I've, I had to navigate it a little bit. Well, we'll find you on, you're on Instagram. You're on Twitter, aren't you? I'm on yeah, Twitter and Instagram. So this is a, I'm I'm looking forward to joining TikTok and putting videos out a couple of times a week. Yeah. That would be good for you. If you want to book Jessica, you can book Jessica through Speaker Spotlight if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So good luck with that. I'm really happy for you, Jessica. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Like we said at the beginning, knowing you're happy, knowing someone else is happy right now as opposed to looking back on it and going, "Oh, life was so much better then. It's good now. And uh, I'm glad for that. I'm glad for you. And thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. It just feels like a fun coffee with friends. So that's great. Thank you so much, Jessica. And we'll be watching on TikTok because, you know, I have seven followers there. So you'll be my eight.
<laughs> I know, my, you know what? If we join forces, we'll have 14. We'll take over the world. <laughs> She's so lovely. I remember her from Air Force and the Celine Dion impersonation and everything else. And just, just such a lovely such a lovely person. She doesn't want to crap on anybody, but she's still funny. <laughs> Do you remember her coming? Do you remember her approaching you on an airplane or wherever it was? Well, now that she's not here, I can say, no, I don't remember. No, plane, I know. But, but I do remember her. I remember yeah. I remember meeting her. I just don't remember the plane. But as you know, I have a crap memory and yeah, I've you always do. had a crap memory. But, uh, <laughs> but I, yeah, I do remember her so, so warmly. And I remember the thing about her being an, a Mennonite, which is not quite the same as being a Mormon. No. But, you know. <laughs> oh, wait. She's a Mennonite, not a Mormon. No, she's a Mormon, but oh. I, the, my memory was that she was a, Men, a Mennonite. I, I knew that there was some, some something unusual thing. that happened. Yeah. But yeah, I just think it's so cool that, you know, depression is, is a complicated thing, as as you know. And, and she kind of figured it out and wrote a book about it, and she's still finding a way to be funny. I think that's kind of amazing. The other thing, too, about acknowledging depression, and it's it used to be something that was never spoken about, just like the Tig Natero joke, you know, I suffer from depression, or as her father said, no, you don't. Uh, it was considered something to be ashamed of, and that just compounded it. I suffer more from anxiety than depression, although the two tend to be playmates, uh, as it were. And, I, you know, I, I am mildly medicated, officially. Some people who just drink and smoke, I'm medicated. <laughs> Well, he gave up smoking mostly. I did give mostly, yeah. But it, the most important thing is to be able to 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 let in some air and sunshine and to be able to talk about it. And and Jessica has certainly, you know, led the way for a lot of people. And as soon as you open it, it's Pandora's box. There's so many other people, funny and otherwise, who are like, yeah, me too. And once you start, once you acknowledge that, you're on the on the road to recovery. It was interesting that she mentioned the whole punching up, punching down approach, which is so, I mean, we both have 24-year-old uh, kids, and so it's 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 a thing that we would have been aware of otherwise, but is brought home, I think, that it's not okay to punch down in any no. humor. And But it's interesting because, like, on our, uh, on our podcast, uh, we have a young black comedian who says, yeah, but punching, don't, don't call me down. Like, I'm yeah, not down. Yeah, if you're punching down, oh. you're making, you're making, you're belittling yeah. me. Yeah. So it's, it's a complicated idea, but I, I generally agree that if you're going to make somebody really unhappy or sad with your comedy, then don't do it, which is yeah. where Jessica, I think, is coming from. Yeah. All right. Huh? I feel better now. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, me too. I think she's lovely. We'll have to go and uh, be motivated by one of her uh, corporate speeches. She's uh, she's great. Lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.